Reproductive Left by Mabel Watson Center, an independent feminist nonprofit comprehensive health care provider in Bangor, Maine. Join us as we explore topics that impact our sexual and reproductive health and lives. Here's your host, Aspen Ruland. Aspen uses they, them pronouns and is our client and community advocate. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Reproductive Left. I'm your host, Aspen. I use they, them pronouns, and we're kicking off our fall autonomy season with an interview with Julie and Christy, two powerhouses in abortion care who also happen to run an abortion fund. Julie, would you like to introduce yourself first? Hello, I'm Julie Jenkins. She, her, hers pronouns. Um, I am, I wear a number of hats. I am a co-founder at Abortion Freedom Fund. I am the um, Clinicians in Abortion Care Strategist and Training Program Manager at the National Abortion Federation. And um, I have a number of um, side projects, consulting projects for other organizations. Hell yeah. And Christy, now you. Hi, I am Christy Pitney. Any or all pronouns are good. And like Julie, also wear a number of hats in the abortion world. Um, So also a co-founder of the Abortion Freedom Fund. I work with Plan C Pills. And then I am the founder of Forward Midwifery, which is my telehealth practice, um, as well as like volunteering with the miscarriage and abortion hotline and some other uh, side things as well. And I will also say that Forward Midwifery has a very cool Instagram account. Uh, I am so excited to have you both with me today. Uh, Can you both share a little bit more about your work? Obviously, you talked about the different hats that you wear, but just a little kind of more in depth about that. What a typical day, if that exists, which it probably doesn't, might look like things like that. You can fight for who goes first. I'll let Julie take it away. <laughs> um, I Well, I am a nurse practitioner. Um, I've been a nurse practitioner for over 20 years. I have been in abortion care since 1991. I started at Mabel Wadsworth. Um Uh, In my first semester at college, um, Mabel was uh, just starting up a uh, brick and mortar clinic and I worked up from doing uh, filing to abortion counseling and then went on from there to um, work at all of Maine's public uh, abortion providers. I was out in California and um, so did clinical work for a long time. Um, And now I do mostly um, policy and advocacy work, um, but I do do a lot of clinical training for folks around medication abortion and um, also also, uh, aspiration abortion procedures. So um, that is my that and and day to day, it looks like trying to run a program for um, advanced practice clinicians um, that uh, which is the membership portion of NAF that I manage um, and to build that program and to get training sites and opportunities for advanced practice clinicians so that we can continue and um and and to continue to work to being um, the fully recognized experts in abortion care that we truly are. 
Hell yeah. Um, Like Julie, I'm also an advanced practice clinician. So I'm a nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. Um, I ever since being in midwifery school, wanted my practice to be like full spectrum care. Uh, But when I first graduated, I was working at federally qualified health centers. And because of the Hyde Amendment, that means that those centers couldn't offer abortion services. And I was in a sort of rural area of California. So I was looking for ways to expand access to my patients in that area. Um, And that combined with the COVID pandemic and the increase in telehealth, um, that is what led me to telehealth abortions uh, as as a way to expand access. Mm. And so that's when I started Forward Midwifery. I was working with Aid Access at the time. Um, I'm no longer there. And... Then through that, just, you know, got got into all of this work. It's It sort of feels like when you dip a toe in abortion, then all of a sudden you're swimming and you're doing it all. And so um, Julie and I have been talking, as well as Richie, our other co-founder who's not with us today, um, about how telehealth abortion was growing more and more, but We were having a lot of trouble finding funding from abortion funds for a variety of reasons. Um, Some of them just didn't know about it. Some of them had restrictions from their donors, uh, you know, a whole range of things. And so that's when we decided to start the Abortion Freedom Fund to really focus on telehealth and pills by mail and helping people who had financial um, concerns with, with accessing that care. I also work with Plan C as their advisor, um, excuse me, as their clinician advisor. And so that looks like a lot of different things. It looks like helping clinicians to start up doing telehealth or connecting them with already established organizations. Um, Yesterday and today, we're doing webinars on ReproCare's Project Piggy Bank, which is connecting funds and clinics to try to streamline funding for patients. So it's a lot of different things, um, as well as seeing patients, but that is something that I primarily do asynchronously, meaning that there isn't a scheduled phone or video call. It's basically intake forms. Um, And so it, again, streamlines access of care for folks. So yeah, you're right. A typical day doesn't really exist for me. Um, Meetings all over the place, traveling different places, always, always different, always on the go. While I do different work in our field, I can very much relate to no such thing as a typical day. Um, so when, when it comes to abortion care, autonomy is a word that you know comes up a lot for good reason. Abortion bans and restrictions are, of course, rooted in limiting autonomy for pregnant people. And, you know, experiencing different types of marginalization will impact people's access to care and subsequently their autonomy. Um you touched on this a little bit with talking about, you know, the abortion freedom fund, but can you talk a little bit more about how abortion funds play a role in improving autonomy for folks? So, I mean, just when it comes to going back to virtual care for a minute, right? People need to have access to all types of care. 
And so it's really important that people get in, have in-clinic access. It's really important that people have access to medication. It's important that people have access to aspiration. People need access to whatever type of care they would mm-hmm. like to have. Um, and, but you know, virtual care is really great for a lot of folks. It means not having to come into the clinic. It means being able to get care in your own community, in your own in your own home. It means that for folks who don't have the greatest experiences um, or have been historically oppressed or marginalized by the medical system, that they um, have the possibility of not having to interact with that system in the same way. And so you know, virtual care can fill a lot of gaps for folks who don't feel comfortable coming into a clinical setting. Mm-hmm. Um, funding for that is very important. And that was the gap that we were seeing um, around that funding and care and wanted to, you know, fill some of that gap because virtual clinics are fairly new, right? They're, they're, they were a, a thing that happened. Um, there aren't a lot of silver linings of COVID, but that was one of the things that COVID allowed for. The changes in the FDA regulations around mifepristone and um, and the ability to ship uh, medication really um, allowed us to do work in the way that we had known was safe because of so many studies, but weren't able to implement. And so this um, having this care and having access to this care, I think really for a lot of folks in more rural spaces, for a lot of folks who um, don't feel comfortable connecting with the traditional medical care model, um, you know, allows them to have access to that care. And that is really important that, um, you know, that once again, that people can get the care that they need, whatever that might be. Mm. And that you mentioning that and talking about obviously the importance for people to have in clinic access, whether they're having, you know, the aspiration procedure or whether they're doing the meds in clinic um, that needs to be available to folks. And also how virtual or self-managed is a better fit for some folks. That reminds me a couple of years ago, you and I were talking for a you know, freelance article I was writing about advanced provision. And, you know, for me, if I didn't have the relationship I have with Mabel Wadsworth Center as a trans person, knowing that that's actually a place that like I would be affirmed in needing abortion care, like without hesitation would do it, uh, self-managed medication abortion. And, um, yeah. And I, I think you named that perfectly that people who have been harmed in healthcare settings, like that is also where virtual can be really helpful, but it doesn't solve every access problem. Yeah. Um, Chrissy, I want to know if you have thoughts around this. I think Julie really covered all the, the, the key points there. Um, I was, while she was talking about it, it just made me think about, you know, that there's, we can talk about rights, like reproductive rights and abortion rights, but there's no rights if there's no access. And so funding and and finances are a big piece of that. Um, And so if someone, you know, either has a clinic in their neighborhood or even has access to a virtual clinic, but they don't have the funding to pay for it, then that restricts their bodily autonomy and their ability to access that care. And so um, that is where abortion funds are picking up the slack of 
our healthcare system, right, and insurance systems, the things that should be making this affordable for folks, but it's not always the case. Um, you know, restrictions like the high amendment that I mentioned earlier that restrict federal funding and things like that. So abortion funds, um, both ours focusing on telehealth, but also the ones that have been around for years and years doing this work are so, so critical in helping people to access this care. Absolutely. And I think it's a good, I'll, I'll mention this here, that, you know, obviously every fund works a little different. The fact that your fund is focused on that, like virtual telehealth care is a great example of that. Um, but funds can often provide some other sort of like practical financial support. Because like, let's say we have someone who, you know, they like they have insurance that covers it, especially where now in Maine, Christy, I don't know if you know about this exciting news, but in Maine, um, private insurers are required to cover abortion care without cost sharing, which means that it's covered before you've hit your deductible or without paying a copay. Huge. Uh, just signed into law, hasn't gone into effect yet, I don't believe, but does soon. Um, but so let's say someone's abortion is covered, but they're coming to Mabel's and they live up in the county and it's a three hour drive and they don't have that kind of gas money. Um, so for folks who are getting in clinic care, abortion funds are often able to help with things like gas cards. Um, and yeah, that's something a lot of folks don't know about when it comes to abortion funds. Yeah, that's absolutely. And then talking about the the insurance coverage piece makes me think too that um, I have patients, uh, my clinic is not set up to be able to take insurance. Um, mm -hmm. I have patients, especially um, in California, where I know that there are telehealth providers who are able to take insurance. I will ask them if they want a referral to these places mm -hmm. so that, you know, we're, we're not charging them their insurance can cover it. But a lot of times, some of them take me up on it, but a lot of times patients don't want to do that for a variety of reasons, such as you're, they're still on their parents' insurance and they don't mm -hmm. want it to show up or they have a controlling partner and they don't want it to be on there. And so everybody's situation is so different and unique. And so, you know, I just think that 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 like intersectionality and and all the the variables, again, make the practical support like you're talking about the gas cards, and also the funding for the procedures or the pills themselves. It's also important. Mm. Yeah, it's all very, very interconnected. Um, with that, let's take a quick break for a Mabel's fast fact. About 75% of people with vaginas don't orgasm from penetrative sex alone. Learn more in our show notes or at MabelWadsworth.org. And we're back. Uh, could you both talk about the role of medication abortion in autonomy? Obviously, like this is something that has come up a bit, but, you know, kind of more specifically focused on that. Uh, and when I say that, I'm talking both generally and the role that medication abortion plays in self-managed abortion. Going back to the beginning of when misoprostol, which is the second medication, or it can be used as a standalone medication for medication abortions, was first found to be useful in this way, there were uh, women and pregnant people in Brazil who saw that it had a label on it that said, don't take this if you're pregnant. And they started self-managing abortions in that way. And then they spread the word through grassroots efforts in their communities 
And that's how people began using misoprostol, which is a medication primarily for ulcers, so totally separate use for medication abortions. And I think that that's such a cool, like, historical story of how how that came to be. And I think it shows how uh, bottle how it like embraces bodily autonomy because people can can use that medication to make those decisions and have their abortions at home in their own way. Uh, Julia, I know you wanted to say something too. No, I think it's also really important um, to recognize in that that we owe a debt of gratitude to the global south in finding those things, and that when we're talking about misoprostol and mifepristone, and we're talking about the case in Texas, and we're concerned about you know potential loss of MIFI, um, that misoprostol has been around, has been used, is super safe, is very effective. We know that, and the reason that we know that is because of how long it has been used, and all of the evidence we have of of its use in the global south, and then in other places in the world. Right? We don't. We haven't had a lot of miso only in the United States, although there are providers that do provide that. Um, but, you know, we know that it's a very safe and very effective medication and there, and and we have the evidence to prove it because of all of these folks who have done the work to 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 make that happen. Um, that does not take away from the fabulousness that is MIFI and um, Mifepristone um, got approval in the United States in 2000. So 23 years ago now. Um, and, you know, has really it's been a game changer for how medication abortion and for the clarity of completion and all of those sorts of things. Right. And um, and so taking that first pill of mifepristone and then taking the four misoprostol or eight misoprostol, depending on what you need um, after that is um, really is a game changer. I mean, I started working in abortion care before that before that happened. Right. And so I remember my stepfather was an abortion provider. He was the medical director at Mabel for a while. He trained a bunch of Mabel providers when Mabel started because he was the only provider north of Augusta for the entire state. And that is a huge catchment area. And because there was no medication abortion, people had to travel for an aspiration procedure from all over the northern part of of Maine, which, Mm -hmm. as we all know, is like a huge you can it can take 10 hours to get there and back if you don't have child care, if you don't have you know, if you can't spend the night somewhere, if you don't have travel costs that are covered. Right. I mean, all of those things. um, It was one of the reasons that Mabel was part of the turnaway study is because there are there were people who couldn't get that care. and, you know, just remembering that and remembering that that was the way that care had to be provided before um, and then seeing the changes after medication abortion became available and being part of a telehealth program that we were start, started in 2015 um, with two nurse practitioners, myself and another nurse practitioner training to provide care in our four northernmost clinics of mm. a main family planning. And we were we had to do teleabortion, right? So it was tele, even though we were there doing the ultrasounds, doing all the care, because at that time, Maine still had a physician only law. And mm-hmm. so the the um, physician would need to come on and watch the patient swallow the pills 
and all of that. And so, but it was still a game changer, even that. And then in 2019, when we won our case, um, well, we didn't win our case when we had legislation that mooted our lawsuit um, uh, and then overturned the physician only law, um, you know, then we were able to as advanced practice clinicians were able to provide care. And that was also a game changer. All of these things that then COVID with tele um, services and people being able to get uh, more abortion care and all of that has to do with medication abortion. And none of that has, it takes away in any way for the, from the folks who need to get aspiration procedures, yes. but it's still, you know, it has been a game changer. Absolutely. It also, and, Oh, Christy, you go. Well, it also makes me just think about um, like safety and efficacy of self-managing, right? So I, Julie kind of touched on this, but I, I'm thinking about the Janes. So um, in the 70s, there was a group of women in the Chicago area that were uh, self-administering or more like a community support and they were doing aspirations but but it was self-managed in that it wasn't like official healthcare providers so that was an option um people have done that for years across the globe um in a variety of different ways there's also herbal self-managing and all of these are um can be safe right if done in appropriate ways can be effective but we also know that they aren't necessarily as safe and effective as medication abortions. Mm -hmm. And so even now, like um, there was a really great herbal abortion session at the National Abortion Federation Conference, and they talked about how a lot of times they talk to people about medication abortion as like a backup plan. So, you know, have all the, the steps and the plan for your herbal abortion, but if things don't work out, then you can take the pills. And so having these two pills that make it, you know, 98 plus percent effective and extremely safe, um, I think, as Julie mentioned, was just a total game changer. Yeah. And that was actually you bring up a point that I wanted to touch on about like that safety and efficacy of, you know, self-managed abortion with medications that like, yeah, you know, prior to like Roe and the legal access that came with that, which obviously we all know Roe is the floor, yada, yada, yada. Um, but, you know, because of like the pre-Roe access and what that looked like and people having to work outside of the law a lot there is understandably kind of still this like cultural view of self-managed abortion being unsafe. And so that is actually a stigma that and, and misinformation that I've been working on trying to help educate around, because particularly with having medication abortion available, the most dangerous thing about self-managed abortion is criminalization. And of course, the more marginalization someone experiences, you know, being Black, being Indigenous, being another person of color, being poor, being someone who uses drugs, that increases the likelihood that they will be criminalized by the state, even in states that do not have laws against self-managed abortion. Um, I know a couple other things I wanted to touch on that Julie had brought up that while we do have medication abortion available, you know, in more northern Maine because of telehealth, 
because of main family planning, being able to offer that at those clinics, Mabel Wadsworth Center in Bangor is still the northernmost clinic in the state for the in-clinic aspiration procedure. So we still have folks who have to travel a really long distance to us. There was even a period of time where the clinic in New Brunswick, Canada closed. This was before I started working at Mabel's. But there was a period where that clinic closed and we were the closest clinic for these Canadian patients who were having to like literally cross a country's border to get the care that they need. Um, the other thing I wanted to touch on is more of, I guess, a bragging point, even though I didn't have a say in this. Julie mentioned how her stepdad was, you know, an abortion provider with Mabel's um, and did a lot of really important work there. I would also like to brag that he was the delivery doc who caught me when I was born. Uh, so I feel like I was a little bit destined to get into this work, um, which is just, again, I brag about it. I didn't actually have a say in who caught me. Um, I still think it's really cool. Uh, and with that, let's take our last Mabel's Fast Fact break. It's important to remember that while one in five people will experience a mental illness during their lifetime, everyone faces challenges in life that can impact their mental health. There are many tools you can use to improve your mental health and increase resiliency. Learn more at MabelWadsworth.org. Julie, Christy, what can regular people do to help support abortion access? I think that, you know, just being as informed as possible is really important. Um, I think that, you know, making sure that you are well informed and then using that information to inform your friends, family, your social circle is yeah. really, really valuable to bring people to events and spaces where people are talking about this to um, encourage people to have the right information, the correct information about self-managed abortion, about medication abortion, about aspiration abortion, because there's a lot of misunderstanding about that as well. Well, you know, I the reason I very specifically use the term aspiration is because, you know, it is not a surgery. And talking mm. about it that way is is not only erroneous, but it's harmful to our understanding for stigma for all the things. Right. It's harmful when we're trying to state change legislation in states for advanced practice clinicians to be able to provide this care. And, you know, it doesn't help us and it doesn't benefit us. And every time I talk to somebody in the media, I say, can you please make sure that when you write this up, you use aspiration abortion? And nine times out of 10, they'll say to me, I can't do that because no one will understand what that means. But the only way we change this is by changing it, right? It would take a sentence to explain why you're doing that. Mm -hmm. And um, the Society of Family Planning just recently came out with a new um, a new uh, it's in contraception, um, uh, but about n abortion nomenclature, like how we have to change some of the ways that we talk about abortion care because it's not right. It's not correct. And right. and and we need to be better about that. And so I think that, you know, those are really important things. But 
educating yourself on what um, what these sorts of things are. If you have the opportunity to go to a papaya workshop as a layperson, go to that papaya workshop and check it out and see what an aspiration procedure really is. Um, you would be, I think most people would be very surprised to at the simplicity of these procedures and the safety and the efficacy. And so I think, and getting as much information as you can for you yourself in the community around self-managed abortion and the safety and efficacy of that as well. Yes, I will also context for folks. Um, probably it was obvious from how you said it. If you don't know what we mean by papaya workshop, when people are learning how to perform abortion procedures, one of the ways that you can learn is you take the tools and you use it on a papaya because a papaya is like shaped and sized real good for basically how an abortion procedure works. And as someone who has shadowed and watched how abortion procedures are done in real life, how aspiration abortion works as someone who has handled products of conception at my job. Um, yeah, it is like way more simple than our culture would have you think. One thing that that makes me think about is our friend Katrina, who did a TikTok on a of a papaya, right? So in yep. like approximately two minutes, she did the whole process of a manual vacuum aspiration on a papaya. So mm -hmm. if we can do it on a TikTok, I think that sort of shows how simple of a procedure it is. Um, some other things that I was thinking about with your your question of what can regular people do is, you know, give what you can. So if you can give time, then contact your local abortion funds and see if you can volunteer. Or um, a lot of, fun, uh, excuse me, a lot of clinics have escorts who will volunteer to walk patients into clinics. You can do that. If you can give money, of course, that is extremely helpful. Um, especially, there was a huge peak in donations last year at the time of Dobbs, and then that all has fallen away. So a lot of abortion, abortion funds are having trouble bringing in that same amount of funding, but the funding needs for patients are still much higher than they were prior to Dobbs. So um, feel free to donate to Abortion Freedom Fund or your local abortion funds or the National Network of Abortion Funds. And... Um, I, thinking about what Julie was saying about educating yourself, um, you know, visit the Plan C Pills website and see how folks can access pills online in all 50 states. Visit I Need an A so you can see where close, your closest abortion clinic is to where you live. Um, there is a documentary called Plan C that I am featured in that came out this year, and it's actually going to be in theaters around um, the country in October. So you can go to, I think their Instagram handle is plan C movie. Um, but you can see if it's playing near you and that can help to educate you on pills by mail and self-managing abortions. Um, and I mean, there's just always webinars and different things like that, that folks can attend to learn more about this. And I think that that's, you know, a really great way to get involved and support access. Hell yeah. I will add, because some of our 
listeners are more local to where Mabel's is. Some of them are not. For the folks who are more local to Mabel's, I'll save you time now. We don't need escorts because we're on private property. We do have protesters, but they have to be out on Mount Hope. Um, and a lot of people think they're protesting the Humane Society, which is really funny. Um, but that is a thing that a lot of clinics around the country do need. So if you are like not local to Mabel's and you like that's a thing that you think you can do, look into it and see if your local clinic needs it. Um, another thing that often comes up with folks who want to like be able to donate to abortion funds and to independent abortion clinics and whatnot is, you know, not everyone like has a lot of money to give. So doing like a smaller monthly donation of like a $5 a month, like that is something that helps a lot more than people realize. But you can also basically run a fundraiser. Like as we're recording this, um, this will come out, you know, in late September, of course, we're recording this in late August. But as we're recording this, I found out this morning that there's like an arm wrestling competition this weekend that's fundraising for Mabel Wadsworth Center. Um, you know, we've had other like businesses do like fundraisers for us. I've known people who are artists who are like, oh, I'm going to make this piece of art and you can buy a $5 raffle ticket. And then that money's going to go to, you know, this abortion clinic or this abortion fund. So even if you're not someone who has a lot of money, but you would like to be able to like donate, um, running a fundraiser is actually a lot easier than people think sometimes. So I wanted to name that because I've talked to a lot of people who are like, oh, I wish I could help financially, but I can't. Um, with that, Thank you both so much for joining me today. And thank you to our listeners as well. I look forward to seeing you all again next month on Reproductive Left. 